everybody, this is Dr. Adam Bernie, and welcome to the next episode of the One Thing Podcast. In today's episode, we speak with Dr. Tarai Gartaturina Kanushi, who is a naturopathic physician based in the San Francisco Bay Area, who has a specialty in mental health. In this episode, we dive into different aspects of mental health disorders, such as neurodiversity. If you're listening to this episode, it is highly likely that either yourself or someone you know has been given a mental health diagnosis. While it's helpful to receive a diagnosis to provide some context and construct to dealing with a mental health problem, it also can be frustrating for the person and the family dealing with this diagnosis because it can limit the person and give them certain labels that may give certain expectations on what the future outcome is for them. Give some context on the complexity of mental health diagnoses. The, it is important to understand how a diagnosis is made. So psychotherapists, psychologists, and psychiatrists use something called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health Disorders, also known as the DSM, to formulate a criteria um, to predict a mental health diagnosis. So this manual first came out, the first edition came out in 1952 and had over 106 different mental health conditions outlined. And the criteria to receive a diagnosis was formulated in that manual. This has grown now in the fifth edition, there's over 300 diagnosis of mental health conditions. So a provider will use this to determine and effectively diagnose an individual with a mental health problem. Dr. Tarai in our discussions dives into something that's more considered like a continuum of mental health diagnosis and how in certain cultures in the world receiving a diagnosis of a condition such as schizophrenia may lead to a different support structure and a, a different outcome than in a Western society. This is a controversial subject because mental health disorders really lie on a continuum. On one end, there can be a mild case or a someone who's more integrated into um, the community, into the culture, and then there can be extreme cases where severe um, presentations of a mental health disorder may limit integration into society. So it's really important as we listen to this podcast that we determine the view of anybody with a mental health disorders from mild to moderate to extreme so that we don't jump to conclusions and you know sit along the continuum and be able to see the view of a mental health condition from various perspectives. Let me just go into a little bit more about our guest before we dive into the episode. Dr. Tarai received her naturopathic medical degree from Bastyr University, and she has a practice in the San Francisco Bay Area. You can find more about her practice if you go to deeplyhappy.com. She is a creator of something called the Deeply Happy Expert Series, and she's licensed in California and Hawaii with, for naturopathic medicine. Um, she also is certified in hypnotherapy and something called neuro-linguistic pro programming. 
She's a very special person, a very special doctor, and um, I think you'll enjoy hearing her thoughts on mental health. So without further ado, welcome to the next episode of The One Thing Podcast. At the conclusion of the episode, I'll share some final thoughts. Dr. Tarai, welcome to the One Thing Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. We, we were just getting off line here just about how long it's been since we saw each other. Mm-hmm. It goes back to, let's I think, 2007. Um, <laughs> and I was excited to get a chance to speak with you today. Um, I remember when we were medical students together that every time you would speak up, there would be some sort of a silence in the room. Everybody wanted to hear what you had to say. It was, you've always had that quality of having such a strong voice and clear about who you are. And I think it really has been something I've appreciated from you about you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So why don't you give the uh, listeners a little bit of insight onto your current uh, background and what you're up to these days? Sure. Um, well, as just like you, uh, I'm a practicing licensed naturopathic doctor. I'm in California, and my practice focus from the get-go has been on mental health and all the things that are related to that. Obviously, as naturopathic doctors, we see how um, we don't focus simply on the mind, but on the whole person, and that includes you know your well-being and your your gut and your how you're living your life. Um, but something that's also been really important to me um, is, you know, I, I went through a period of depression myself. And one of the things I learned about it was that it can be, and I wouldn't generalize this to everyone, but there's a lot of potential in, you know, a different mental state other than, you know, just being like happy and cheerful and like thumbs up. But there can be a calling in in every, in every change that comes to us. And since my focus is on mental health, you know, whether it's depression or anxiety or even things like schizophrenia and bipolar uh, can be unique moments for us to have insight that we otherwise would not have. And so there's always this interesting balance of, okay, this is a distressing mental state and let's try to, you know, help you through it in a way that's comfortable and you come out the other end. And at the same time, let's recognize there might be value in this. There, mm-hmm. might, there might be a message in this. And uh, that's something that I've been exploring in my own studies, but also with my patients and also with um, you know, people I, I interact with through, through my newsletter and things like that you know, about it. You know, how, how, do we, how do we move, how do we shift from a culture that is simply pathologizing um, anything other than productivity to something that welcomes a wider range of being and what more can we gain as a culture when we do that? Mm-hmm. Makes a lot of sense. So where, where's the line between when someone needs help that is sort of addressing sort of the acute issues related to mental health versus um, putting it into a context or learning how to, to live with it? That's a great question. And, and, and the thing is, right, as you know, we all need help. 
all the time, um, every day. There, the uh, individualism is a nice concept and it, it can work, but the truth is as humans, we are an interactive species. We are social. And it's not a and or, but it's a yes and. And so there's a great film actually that, that explores this beautifully called Crazy Wise. I'm not sure if you've heard about it. It, it came out last year and it talked about how you know, tribal, there's certain tribal, not all, you know, certain tribal societies or agricultural societies or, or, or um, even hunter-gatherer tribes that are still with us on this earth now, when somebody has unusual psychological symptoms like uh, fainting spells or hearing voices or, um, you know, seeing things that others are not seeing, they are taken under the care of someone who knows how to navigate that. So sort of an elder or another shaman who can say, you have this potential and let's nurture that. And so, so the idea isn't that, okay, you've got that, just kind of live with it or make the best of it and try to find a gift in it. There you go. It's mm -hmm. like, oh, here's what you're presenting. Here's what you have that has a potential gift. Let's mold that. Let's hone that. And, mm. and, and westernized culture is so the opposite of that, has no context for that at all, as far as I can see, or uh, barely any, if any, that, you know, the, the only kind of help we usually think of getting is like, how do we make it go away so that you're back to normal? And, yeah. right, so. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's so true. And what's, really profound about what you just said is that you're not pretending that it's an easy path and everything's full of flowers and roses. You're actually being, you're, you're honoring both the fact that there are some, there needs to be some support, but also honoring the fact that what, what is the gift? Mm -hmm. What and is the gift? Yeah. And yeah, that's, that's a really, um, so when, when you're working with people, is that the context that you, you come from when you're, when you're addressing mental health? Yeah. So, yeah. So for example, in, you know, bringing it down to a practical level of, you know, a, a patient setting um, where someone comes in with anxiety or someone comes in with depression and, and, you know, occasionally I do see people with, you know, bipolar and, you know, that is, the, that is the context. It's like, okay, first of all, I don't use these words uh, necessarily, but, you know, first of all, let's normalize this feeling that you're going through, right? Mm -hmm. uh, oftentimes when people are struggling with something, especially a mental health issue, there's a lot of guilt or they feel like, oh God, you know, how come I can't like, you know, cope? And, uh, and I think uh, as a practitioner, as a clinician, and just as a fellow human being, one of the most important things to start with is like, first of all, it's okay that you're feeling this way. Mm -hmm. Like this, this is an absolutely okay way to feel and an okay way to be. And my biggest concern always is of course, you know, the risks that come with, you know, you know, a low mood or, or different perceptions is, you know, we're always worried about suicide um, in mental health. Right. Um, and so, of course, those are always things that we want to explore because safety first, you know, first do no harm. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to determine, OK, is this person in such a state that they, they are, are they in so much pain that they would 
you know, that they would make a judgment to, to take their own life and that's mm-hmm. or hurt someone else. That's always a baseline. And the reason I ask that and I frame it in that way is because I feel and, and I've th- felt that um, I've felt that low that I've seriously considered it. And I think it's a kind of mm-hmm. pain that is really a calling to like not be this way, like not to change. It's something, you know, mm-hmm. something in us has to die for us to have the transformation, you know, through this mm. process. But in the practical sense, in a clinical sense, you know, you're, you're making sure someone is safe. Um, and if they have a suicide plan, you're, 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 uh, you're doing the things that keep them safe from that, including considering, sure. you know, ha- you know, admitting them to stabilize them mood wise. Right. Um, so that's a hard line. <laughs> that's one of the hard lines. Right. right? It's like, and in fact, I've, sh- I've shared this in a way of like, you know, this is a really difficult process. And there's pain and there's mm-hmm. something to be gained from it. But I have faith mm-hmm. that you and I and your support team, we can, you can go come through this and come out. Um, you know, you, you can have a transformation through this process and, you know, you just have to stay on this side of life, right? Mm-hmm. Like stay on this side as much as, 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 you know, just like everything you can do to hang on on this side. And let's, mm-hmm. and then let's do the things that help you feel more comfortable through the process you know, whether it's, and absolutely it's, is, is your diet a factor? You know, do you have a uh, uh, food sensitivity? Are you not getting enough protein? Are you, you know, are you just not getting the nutrients you need so that your brain can function through this process optimally? Do you need, do you need botanicals? Do you need uh, uh, amino acids? Do you need a, a psychiatric med? Um, you know, this is, this, mm-hmm. this doesn't exclude that range. Uh, so let's find, mm-hmm. let's find the formula that works for you. Um, and then, and then, you know, the other support, like, do you need a therapist? Do you need a group? Um, you know, let's, let's shepherd you through this process and let's always keep in mind, like the, the, the perspective isn't that like you're sick. Um, mm-hmm. there's people who would like to make the analogy that, well, why would you be ashamed about taking insulin as a diabetic? You know, uh, in, mm-hmm. in the same way, you shouldn't be ashamed of taking um, medication. And and I and mm-hmm. I love that because it destigmatizes it from a medical perspective. Um, right. And the 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 field of of psychiatry is not as actually firmly grounded in physiology. At least the physiology of pharma, pharma, psychopharmacology <clears throat> isn't as clearly. Um, it's not as black and white as insulin to diabetes, as you know. Right. And yeah, and the, the social aspects, although the social aspects of any chronic illness needs to be recognized, uh-huh. uh, the level of social impact for someone with a mental health problem is at a very high level. Uh-huh. Uh, um, wonder if you could comment on sort of the difference of someone who's been given a mental health diagnosis. And I think you referred to something when we were talking offline about um, best prognosis or better prognosis theory. I think that's what it's called. Um, And if you could just talk about that, because I think it it really impacts the social social impact of being given a mental health diagnosis. Yeah, that's, that's a really, thanks for bringing that up. So the better prognosis hypothesis is the, uh, is the idea that people who are diagnosed with, uh, and this specifically refers to uh, people who are diagnosed with schizophrenia, psychosis, or bipolar, sort of the more uh, extreme end of, of, 
non-ordinary states. Uh, so, so it seems that people who are schizophrenic, bipolar, and so on, and are diagnosed and live in developing countries fare better over the long term than people who are diagnosed in Western industrial countries. And uh, there's even an interesting uh, study, which is sort of related to this, but and or might be part of the reason um, is in, for example, in countries like India was is one that I, I recall, you know, it's more common for people to have visions and voices that are encouraging um, and are advising versus in the Western uh sample set of people who hear voices, they're more often tend to be um, aggressive or critical or mean. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's obviously a social context that may be happening here and that's starting to be borne out by more and more research. So is it because the the, the psychiatric or the the antipsychotics we use um, are actually making people worse? Um, Mm -hmm. Is it that uh, many psychotic uh, so-called psychotic or schizophrenic uh, instances are naturally self-limiting. And mm-hmm. if you give people a, a context and a space and the support to work through the process, they will actually come out of it uh, on their own and, mm-hmm. and, and will not have needed that. And that's the same argument that has been made for depression as well, for example. Uh, there's some good evidence that people who take uh, antidepressant medications will are more likely to have a relapse in their depression down the line versus people not now you know we can there's a long conversation about well what's the sample size and what are the parameters but bottom line being how are we supporting people you know who, who are having these experiences and let's not ignore the fact that you know the US is such an individualistic society um, it leaves many people really without any social support and that often goes down you know, racial lines, um, mm-hmm. social economic lines. And so you, there's sort of this layering of factors uh, in which someone who's both their, uh, you know, their family trauma, their, uh, so their socioeconomic status, the, their ex- lived experience in the world, their mm-hmm. nutritional status, you know, all these things can contribute to them having a non-ordinary uh, experience, right? Some kind mm-hmm. of so-called break, uh, with mm-hmm. with everyone else's reality, um, and 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 it's and it's these people who are in that state, you know, people of color, people who are poor, uh, are less likely to have the support and the time. I mean, think about very wealthy people who might have these very unusual states, and they might, you know, get the opportunity and and the benefit of being called eccentric, right? right. Because the, because they actually don't have to work to make a living, and so their family can sort of support them and take care of them. And, and possibly help them see it through, you know, mm-hmm. if, they have, if they have both the, the wealth and the emotional understanding of their community, then probably they can get through it and then just go on to be this very creative person, possibly. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think there's, I've seen all aspects personally. I've seen wealthy people with these, with mental health disorders get rejected by their family. Right. And I've also seen in... Um, poor parts of the world or poor communities where someone with a mental health disorder isn't treated um, different and they're kind of included in all family activities. They're just there just like everybody else and everybody loves them just like everybody else. So I've seen, I've seen these examples. So what you're saying is, is really profound. And 
I don't spend enough time personally considering this um, in my own life and also in my clinical encounters. I think it's really eye-opening. And you brought up a term neurodiversity, which I'm going to put some of these definitions in the show notes so that we, we all can um, have a, a context and, and understanding what these terms mean. But we talked just about neurodiversity. And I, I would also like, if possible, to share some of the opponents of neurodiversity and maybe mm-hmm. shed some light on why there might be some opposition. That's a really good question. Yeah. And, and I'm glad you brought that up because, for example, I've, I've heard some communities, um, for example, in the autism community, uh, even you know, push back against the neurodiversity issue uh, because they think it, it sort of romanticizes um, you know, what actually can happen in, in people with severe autism. You know, like there's, there's pushback against like the Rain Man example or the autistic savant uh, model where yeah, they're autistic, but they're also like really, really gifted and they have, they may be a genius in a certain regard when that can be really painful for families who have children who, uh, whose symptoms are so severe, you know, know, they're, they're deeply nonverbal. They're uh, very, very um, emotionally labile. And it's, and it's a real struggle for these parents. Um, And, and it, and it, May, they may feel excluded by the idea of like, oh, you know, let's just accept people who are autistic and not try to change them because, you know, let's just, just let them be who they are when really there are cases in which they need support. And it, it kind of pulls back into like the social context of like, um, if productivity is your only measurement, if conformity is a, the, of greatest value, then yeah, it's a, a real struggle for these parents. And, you know, not to mention, let's not forget like the economic toll, right? You know, if I'm a parent and I have a child who needs so much care and attention and never progresses towards the independence that we expect of children, then that's a big impact on me. So that's one aspect of pushback against neurodiversity. Mm-hmm. Um, and another piece is really just like society pushes back against neurodiversity, right? Let's face it, like the, the DSM is a catalog of the ways in which you are not functioning. You know, the Diagnostic mm-hmm. and Statistical Manual um, of Psychiatry is the ways in which someone is not functioning. So that's sort of the antithesis of neurodiversity. So those are the two examples that, that, that come to mind yeah. for me. Yeah, and it seems, you know, I think the, the concept of neurodiversity is that um, there are variants in our population of, of all kinds of, there's a continuum of behavioral variants and um, neurologic variants. And to take a step back and look at this from a perspective of a continuum versus something that, you know, every symptom that someone who has, say, autism or um, Asperger's is a symptom that needs to be changed or corrected. Um, that's, that's sort of the Western view or conventional view um, versus a neurodiverse view is to kind of be more respectful of the variance of, of um, neurologic um, tendencies or behaviors and, and honor, it, honor these differences versus think each of every of these behaviors needs to be changed. The, one of the examples is um, 
for example, eye contact in an in a ADHD, I'm sorry, in an uh, autistic person um, trying to change that, is that necessarily something that should be focused on? Right, right. So, yeah, sorry, were you gonna comment on that? No, no, it's, it's that, 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 that's, I was just agreeing with you. Um, yeah. yeah, so I think this is a very important kind of uh, topic for us to, to reflect on as healthcare practitioners or anybody that's dealing with a mental health problem or someone who has a loved one that's dealing with a mental health problem. And what if you were listening to this and say you had never heard these approaches or and it, it sort of stirred something within you, what could someone do with this new information and for example, if they were to come to see you or, or could you tell us some resources to, to learn more about this approach? To learn more about, let's say, uh, you know, let's let uh, neurodiversity, you can simply Google neurodiversity and all kinds of things are going to uh, come up around it. There's, there's conference that, conferences that are being held on neurodiversity. Uh, the film Crazy Wise is a really good good starting point um, because it's um, you know it, it it follows the lives of a couple of people who are uh, who were diagnosed bipolar and schizophrenia and how they were both eventually able to uh, channel that but the trauma that they went through in the mental health system in the meantime uh, it also talks about you know some of the tribal uh, and non-western cultures that supports us so that's a good starting point um, you know, from a from a, in 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 a, from a clinical perspective, if someone were to come to me in a clinical setting. Of course, we would kind of explore these things and get them the support they need. But if someone wanted to learn more, I would suggest um, uh, I would suggest the names of Phil Borges. Um, I would suggest the names of Gabor Mate, who talks a lot about you know the influence of trauma on someone's being and someone's mental state and someone's emotional state. And Gabor Mate is, of course, a legend in these circles. And one of the things he challenges is really like, what is normal? You know, uh, what, what, what is it that we consider normal and what do we consider abnormal? And, uh, you know, what are, the, what are the reasons behind that? You know, is our society as a whole a sane society? You know, what are we doing? You know, let's, let's look at, you know, we, we, you look at the environment and you look at, you know, the inequality is like, is this what we consider normal? Um, you know, our, our colleague, um, uh, Brad, Brad Lichtenstein uh, said a while ago, and this has always stuck with me, you know, he said, you know, why are people who are depressed and anxious in this difficult world, you know, why are they considered abnormal or ill? And why do like, we? Yeah, and, I've and, heard and, the term like, "How could you not be depressed or anxious?" Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, but but the interesting follow-up he had to that was, "And how come we don't pathologize greed, you know, or avarice, you know, the 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 obsession with money, you know, and right. and power? Like, why do we not look at that as pathological? Like, it says so much about our society, the things that we call normal and the things yeah. that we accept." as normal and abnormal. So really even just questioning the labels of yes. what we put, you know, is, 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 a, is a really great starting point for someone who's listening or, or, or whoever approaches me 
that is wondering about themselves or a friend of theirs or a loved one who is not falling into the quote unquote, you know, normal ranges of what society seems to think they should be. Sure, there could be a strong element of can we help them uh, be more comfortable and be their best selves through nutrition and through uh, the right kind of medicine and the right kind of support. Absolutely, we're not excluding that or saying no to that. And, 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 and the gift, you know, the gift in what they have. Let's not forget that, you know. Mm. Let's not exclude that when we take the catalog of all their qualities and all their behaviors and all their characteristics. Let's not just look for the ways in which they're not functioning. Let's look for the, let's look for the things they have in which if we could support them enough, if we could make them feel safe enough, they could actually make our community better. They could contribute. They could even be leaders or healers. Mm, amazing. Well, I'd like to wrap up on that note. That was very profound. I'm just deeply honored to have had this conversation with you, Dr. Tarai. Um, and uh, thank you for, for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Okay. We'll talk to you soon, I hope. Thanks. Take care. Okay, bye. Hey, everybody. This is Dr. Wendy. I'm just sharing some concluding thoughts on the episode um, that we just listened to with Dr. Tarai Garchaturina Kanushi. I'm not going to dove, dive too much into adding additional information from the episode. I just want to highlight a few things that I think are really important. One is um, to really look into the topic of neurodiversity. Um, Judy Singer, who coined the term in Australia in 1998, 1988, is someone I would look into and also Harvey Bloom who popularized the word in um, the Atlantic um, issue in 1998 um, with a article under diversity um, may give some more context of this term um, I think personally this affected me on a deep level um, because you know I've, I've been a father of a medical child and, and one episode I might go into further details about that but um, just listening to this episode stirred some emotions in me because I, I realized that he my son um, would was getting a lot of different labels and and diagnosis uh, based on his medical bout with pediatric cancer and um, the trauma that was associated with that that particular treatment um, in that particular process, he also was a dialysis patient because of cancer therapies. And the trauma that he experienced um, really added a number of layers to how he was being described um, by the medical providers. And, you know, I can, I can see on one hand how it was really, it's really important to take a diagnosis seriously so that there's tools and resources and medications available to help um, increase the, the outcomes and improve the, um, the ability to manage these mental health conditions. On the other hand, um, in certain people, it may be limiting, um, especially in younger folks um, who, um, with a neurodiverse perspective, may develop better self-esteem versus being seen as outcasts to society. So, um, and they, they may, they may have better, more favorable outcomes with their life. Um, if the context of, um, neurodiversity is incorporated in their early approach. So
so I, I think this is has a, a really big place in the mental health world. On the other hand, um, I, I can also see how someone who has a very severe diagnosis of a mental health problem would look at this as potentially trying to downplay the severity of what one deals with with a severe case of schizophrenia or bipolar or any mental health problem for that matter. Um, there's all degrees, you know, someone who says they have condition X um, means com a completely different thing. You have to really know the inner workings of how that condition is affecting the social support structures, the severity of the condition before you can determine whether this is someone who would really be considered um, supported by a neurodiverse approach or if that would potentially water down the severity of the medical implications of their condition. Um, so I think this is a, a very important topic and um, can really improve the lives of others um, that are dealing with mental health problems um, and for all of our loved ones and, and those listeners who are struggling with mental health conditions. Um, this is something to look into is, you know, kind of learning about the strengths of having uh, neuroatypical behavior or um, something that's not considered to be mainstream behavior and to, to work with someone to, that could potentially be a guide um, to help the understanding. So um, this opens some possibilities and um, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Um, and like I said, it was a very emotional, intense episode for me, um, but I'm really glad we did this, this episode and um, I hope it helps the, the lives of of the listeners and your loved ones. So um, please um, continue to listen to our episodes. We'll be, we have a number of episodes already recorded, um, some really great topics coming up. I'd love for you to subscribe in iTunes. Um, look for The One Thing Podcast by Dr. Adam Rindy. In iTunes, we're in Stitcher as well. We're in all pretty much all the major um, players, Spotify. Go ahead and subscribe so that you get the episodes when they launch. And please share the episodes with your friends and loved ones. We really want to get this information out there. Um, this is um, a labor of love for me, and um, I'm really enjoying doing this. And um, I, hope, I hope you're enjoying the episodes as well. Thanks again for tuning in to One Thing.